0: How are you today, church? Good? Yeah. Thanksgiving treat you well? Good. Good. Extra responsive today, I can tell. Great. This is going to go really well. So um early in my teens, I used to race sailboats. Fun little hobby on the side. A little um, sunfish. Tiny little sailboats. Raced in regattas, and honestly, after my first season, I pretty much won every regatta I competed in. Uh-huh. No surprise there. But um, I, I learned um, the difference between first place and last place in a sailing regatta is your ability to read the wind. Not only what it's doing currently, but what it's going to do in the next 10 to 15 seconds. And so I took this pretty seriously. I'm a little bit, little bit of competition in my blood. So I actually shaved the back of my neck because you can feel every breeze. And then I learned how to read on the water. If you watch the water, you can actually see a breeze coming. You can see its angle. You can see its... its. You you can read just from watching the ripples on the water. You can also learn to read the, the very edge of the sail. That if you if you read it just right, if you continue to play with the sail, you can have it just in that perfect place where it actually creates a vacuum on the backside of the sail and you can actually go faster than the wind. And if you can read all of those things, if you can feel it, if you can see it, if you can get a sense of what's coming next, you can win. Now, pastoring is nothing like sailing a boat. But there's something to that, something about um, leading a church that... But even before I came here, one of the one of the themes that the leaders had was it was about throw, setting sail and letting the winds of the Spirit blow our church where it will. And uh, having conversations with Lucas and the elders, I just feel like I kind of see some things, I kind of feel some things that. Say there, there's some breezes coming. There's some some things that might be coming our way that we want to. If we're careful, if we read what what God's doing, where the Spirit's moving, where He's opening up opportunities for us. This this is a crucial moment for our church, and we wanted to take a Sunday where we take a break from our normal preaching series, take a break from the parables, take a break before Christmas, and talk about what we see, what we have seen, where God's leading us and. Pushing us and pulling us as a church, some opportunities we have so that maybe we can set our sails just right and catch these winds of the Spirit. So, in order to talk about where we're headed, I want to start here. 797 BC, ancient Israel, northern part, what we would know, and many times as Samaria. Jehoash is is now king of Israel. And you don't need to know anything about Jehoash. Just know that he is um, he's a king. And he's not a very good one. The scriptures just tell us this description. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's about all we know. Now, don't get me wrong. If Jehoash walked in here, if he was one of the guys you you met over dinner, he wouldn't be a particularly evil man. You wouldn't think much about him. I mean, you'd meet him and you'd find a guy who used most of his money for himself, who really enjoyed women, a guy who used God's giving gifts and authority to set his own agenda, to run his own kingdom. He's basically like most of us. So Je- Jehoash hears... Um, this king of Israel hears that Elisha, the prophet of God, is dying. And he decides he wants to go down and he wants to see this prophet of God before he dies. And so 2 Kings chapter 13 gives us this, this brief story. 2 Kings chapter 13, starting in verse 14. Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. So he's he's on his deathbed, literally. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the horses, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, like Jehoash sees Elisha and he is all torn up. He's weeping. The king is weeping for this man. That Elisha is not just another guy. He's not just a man of God. Elisha is a prophet. He's the one from whom the king gets the word of God. Elisha is a walking Bible. Okay, so if the king wants to know God's will, he doesn't have a Bible to open up and read. He doesn't have a Bible app to check out. He has Elisha. And if Elisha's gone, he knows that he might never again hear from God. But that's not the only thing. What does he call him? The chariots and horsemen of Israel. This is a reference to the army of the Israelites. But it's also Elisha's nickname. You see, uh, Israel had been in this horrible, bloody conflict with Syria, much like today. Syria is just to the east. They called them the Arameans at the time. And every battle they fought, they lost, except when Elisha prayed for them. When Elisha was on their side, when he came before the Lord and prayed for them, they won their battles. So what's his nickname now? Elisha, your prayers are our army. Your prayers, you... Man of God are our chariots and horsemen. Without Elisha, there was no word of God. Without Elisha, there was no help from God. And even a wicked man, even an evil king, even a sinner like Jehoash, he sees Elisha dying. And he knows what's coming. And he weeps. Then, in verse 15, something's going to happen that only makes sense if you really know God. God, through the prophet Elisha, is going to decide to bless Jehoash. Jehoash, the man who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoash, the guy who used all of his wealth and all of his power to for self-aggrandizement, to indulge his own pleasures, to build his own kingdom. The guy who ignored God for years and years and years and years. God wants to bless him. Our God loves to bless sinners. Look at verse 15. Elisha said, get a bow and take some arrows. And so he did. He said, now take the bow in your hands. And he said to the king of Israel, and when he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And then look at this, verse 17. He says, open the east window. What's to the east? Syria. Your great enemy that you cannot defeat on your own. He says, open the east window. And he said to him, and he opened it. And then he says, shoot, Elisha says. And he shot. And he shot. And then what does he say? He declares over that shot the Lord's arrow of victory. The arrow of victory over Aram. Elisha declared, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. God wants to bless the sinner. But he's not done. Look at verse 18. And then he said, now take the arrows. And the king took the arrows. Take them in your hand and strike the ground. Watch this. And he struck it three times. And he stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram completely and destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. That's it. Now, this is a weird story. I mean, I remember the first time I read this as a teenager, I'm like, what in the world? Arrows beat the ground. I mean, this is a story. This is a, what, 2,900-year-old story. It's full of like these crazy prophetic symbolic language. Like it's an ancient story about an ancient king, arrows beating the ground. What, what does this mean? But here's the deal. I want you to just set that aside for a minute and just think about this. If you understand Elisha's anger, you understand everything about this story. The Elisha looks at the king and says, do you know what God just put in your hand? Do you know what God just gave you? This is not just an arrow. The first arrow was an example. It was to show you that God wants to do something for you that that you can't do on your own. That God wants to bless you. That God has put an opportunity in your hand that He's going to give you victory that you could never have on your own. That God knows you and He knows you're a sinner and He knows that you've ignored Him and He knows you've used His kingdom for your own purposes and He still wants to bless you when the king gives a half-hearted response, Elisha's furious. He says, God just gave you the opportunity of your life. And that's how you respond. Like the God of the universe just told you that he wants to bless you. Like, he just put the opportunity in your hand, and that's how you respond. It's half-hearted. It's safe. It's predictable. It's respectable. It's how a king should act. But Elisha says, no, you should have beaten the ground like a madman. When God gives you that opportunity, how could you give that up? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of losing control? Are you afraid of looking silly? Or maybe you're afraid of letting God bless you. Maybe you actually prefer to keep God at a comfortable distance. Whatever the case, Elisha says your safe and predictable faith are going to give you safe and predictable results. God's still going to bless you a little, but you're going to miss out on God's best. And then Elisha dies. And that's it. That's his final words in life. You are going to miss out on God's best. You had the opportunity in your hand and you're going to miss out on God's best. And you know what? Jehoash never heard from the Lord again. Ever. This is not only Elisha's last words. This is God's last word to the king. You missed it. I wanted to give it to you. And you missed it. So fast forward, oh, 2,900 years. Somewhere in Valley Forge, November 20th, 24th, 2011. It's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, two years ago. We're meeting at that little conference center on Valley Forge. And right after the kids and the teachers are dismissed to their classes, we had 55 adults in our auditorium that morning. I stood up that night. We had a Thanksgiving feast that I invited everyone to and stood up that night in front of the massive crowd at our Thanksgiving feast. And I made a plea. I said, hey, I've been here for a year now and I've never, I've really not asked you to do anything. I've just asked you to show up to be part of what we're doing. I said, I've I've got a request. Not just me, but the elders. We're, We're asking you to be part of something Christmas is coming up and Christmas is the one time of year when everyone, everyone likes Christmas. Who does like Christmas? Baby Jesus, little manger, wise men. Everybody likes Jesus. Everybody thinks they should go to church on Christmas. So, so, so Christmas time, just do me a favor. I said, like, just invite your friends, pray, pray, ask God, who should I be talking to about my faith? Who should I be inviting to our church? Who should I be sharing the gospel with this Christmas? That's it did that that day four weeks pass and we have our big christmas outreach and i honestly didn't know what to expect remember we only had 55 adults in the auditorium four weeks earlier and for the first time ever we saw the conference center fill up 178 people it was a new attendance record and the best part about it is over a third of the people there were first-time visitors and in that, I don't know if you know the history of our church at all, but our church, much like you, has a past, and a lot of it's not good. And the church had been through a lot of hard times. We had a lot of failures, a failed building campaign, a couple pastors left. Nineteen families had left the church before I came. And the church had been through a lot of losses and a lot of hurts. But something happened that Sunday that changed in us, something that we believe that maybe God could work in us, maybe God could use us. And then that next spring, we we came together with the elders in the church and, and new people started showing up and we spent a month praying, praying that God would direct us, that God would lead us, that God would show us who he wants us to be. We spent a month praying and then we finished with the day of fasting. And we just asked this Lord, Lord, use us. Lord, do something with our little church that when people say it, they'll say, surely God is in this place. God, direct us. We don't know where to go. And I wish I could say that, you know, the walls shook and tongues of fire came down, but it didn't. Thousands of people didn't come to Christ. None of of that. But God did in that process give us a clear sense of who He was calling us to be as a church. I wanted to remind you of a few of these things. These might be new to you if you're new to our church. There were... There are about ten different things that came out of it. I just want to share six of them. The first thing is that we want to be a church where the truth is proclaimed. And we're not just talking from the pulpit. We're talking in our families, in our groups, in our households, in our one-on-one relationships. We want to be a place that is not afraid of the whole truth. That we are sinners headed for hell unless Jesus Christ comes after us and dies a bloody death on the cross. If, if heaven and hell aren't at stake, then we, we don't want to be part of this thing. Church is a really awful hobby. But if it's true, then this is something. This is We want to be part of that. We want to be a, a safe place to struggle. The only thing worse than giving up the truth, rather, is being a church that takes the truth, takes the Bible, and beats people across the head with it. Then we don't want to be that That we want to be a place where broken people don't run away from the church, but they actually run to the church. We want to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. We want to be a safe place to struggle. We want to be a church that never stops growing in our relationship with God. We think that if we're following Jesus, there's always a next step. There's always a next step. The, The following Jesus should be many things, but it should never be boring. We want to be a church that majors on the majors. We're going to be a church that is about Jesus, that we stand for historical Christian orthodoxy and not a lot more, that a lot of churches have confused. They've added to Christianity political agendas. They've added to Christianity lifestyles. They've added to Christianity racism. They've added to Christianity all kinds of things, consumerism. That we want to be a church that stands for historical Christian orthodoxy, the Trinity, Jesus is God, man, that Jesus died for us, and at the very center of it is Jesus Christ on the cross for us, that he died for our sins, rose from the dead. If we get that, we get everything. That's what we want to be about. We want to be about God's kingdom and not just our church. That churches should not, churches and ministries should not be competing. We should actually be working together. We should actually cheer when other churches grow, when people come to know Jesus in other churches. We should be excited about that. We should be promoting them because we're on the same team. And last, we want to be in the community. Now, when we said these words, this came up again and again. We had these little focus groups and this came up over and over again. We had no idea what this would look like. But we knew that when we met as a church in a beautiful park in the middle of nowhere, it just felt weird. That our church should be around people. That the church exists for other people and not just for itself. That we needed to be in the community, whatever that looked like. So, two years ago, we fasted, prayed, and these are the things that came out. Two years later, last week in fact, Saturday night, week before Thanksgiving, I'm up at the bridge, and you know, last week I was actually asked to preach at another church to fill the pulpit. And while I was gone, I heard that there were over 155 adults in the auditorium. Well, all the kids were dismissed upstairs. That's three times what it was two years ago. But that night, I was, um, when I preach other places, you guys are easy. I like you guys. I know you guys. I know how you're responding, Or are not responding to me. It's easy. Like right now, you're not responding at all. <laughs> but it's comfortable for me to preach here because I know you guys. I love you guys. I've done life with you guys. When I go to other churches, I'm like, ah, who are these people? And they're all wearing suits and stuff. This is weird. So I have to do a lot of extra preparation. So last, it was Saturday night, and I was reviewing and reviewing, and... I was at the bridge, it was getting late, and I was starving. I was like, I'm not making it home for dinner. So I walk over next door, and there's a um, bar, restaurant, Bistro on break. It's really good. Their veggie burger is awesome, by the way. So I, I go over there to order a veggie burger takeout. And, and, you know, to get takeout, you have to go up to the bar. So I, I go up to the bar, and I'm sitting there, and um, and I'm waiting. The bartender's just not showing up. And the guy next to me... Looks over and he starts a conversation. He obviously wants to talk. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just, wait, have you seen the bartender? I'm just waiting to order takeout here. And uh, he's like, well, wouldn't you want to drink a delicious beer while you wait? I thought, well, that's nice of him. Anyone who says that to you, you just immediately like them. And I said, you know, that's very nice. I, I would like to do that. But honestly, I, I still have work to do. And I don't think that's a good idea. He's like, you have work to do? What do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. I'm I'm preaching tomorrow. And this guy like stopped everything. He's like, you're a pastor? And he's uh, at the bar on Saturday night. He's sitting there and he's like, seriously, he said, I've never met a pastor before. And he's just fascinated by this. He's, we, he starts talking like, how does someone become a pastor? How would you decide to become a pastor? And I, I get to tell him, I just say, you know, I never planned on it. Like I, I went to college, I wanted to do something real with my life, like business or something where I make real money and do things. But but honestly, I met some people who told me about Jesus and it just changed my life, ruined my plans. And... Uh, I heard about no matter what I was living in, Jesus loved me, he came after me. And it just that changed my life to the point that I couldn't imagine living, doing anything else in my life. Like, I, I love being a pastor. And I actually got to go through the whole gospel with him, just sitting there telling my story. And the guy looks over from his beer and he says, I have to excuse this it's bar talk says you are the most effing interesting person in here <laughs> and then he calls his girlfriend and says you need to come over here this guy's a pastor and he looks at me and says tell her and he insists that I tell her my story about how Jesus changed my life and how I want to live for him and then he stops and says to his friend across the bar you need to come over here and he invites another friend over and says "He's a p- tell him and he insists that I tell him about Jesus Christ. Here's a man who drinks copious amounts of beer, curses liberally, and desperately wants to hear about Jesus Christ. After a little conversation, he looked at me and said, I've been out of church for over a decade and I've done things. Like, what do I have to do to be able to come back to church? And I got to tell him about grace. You don't have to do anything that Jesus did at all. And I left that conversation thinking, this is it. This is why we're here. This is what it's about. This is what it looks like to be the church and community. This is, this is, we're starting to realize what we prayed for and fasted for two years ago. We're seeing this now, like this never would have happened in the middle of fields. God's called us into community. In the last three months, since our Bridge Street location has been open, we can multiply this story again and again. Just because we're there, we're present. And as I started thinking about this, I started thinking about that list. And I started thinking, you know what? God has, has worked in the last two years. God has really done cool things in every one of these things. That we we are a church in community now. We're in the community. We need we it not in our location, in their location. Both here and in the middle of Bridge Street, in the middle of where everyone comes to party and drink and do life. We're there. We are a church that is about God's kingdom and not just our church. You know, this past year we partnered with five other four other churches to bring a, a, an entire festival to our community the pumpkin festival that we've uh we've we partnered with a uh, calvary bible church to do vbs together churches working together at the ymca that we've done a pulpit swap with Ironworks. that i meet monthly with these local pastors why because it's not about us It's about what God's doing in his kingdom. That we are a church that majors on the majors. And you know how I know that? A couple weeks ago, I had my How to Study the Bible course. 18 people showed up. And the first thing I asked them to do is to fill out a little card, anonymous card, about some of their background, where they're at. And one of the questions I asked is, what's your church background? Just, what's your church background? Do you have any? Write whatever you got in there. And on the 18 cards, you know what I found? 14 different totally different backgrounds we have baptists we have methodists we have assemblies of god we have anglican we have catholics we have presbyterians we we have methodists we have all of these in the the same church how is that possible because we're about one thing and everyone feels at home when we're about jesus christ we are a church where people don't come to a certain place and think, oh, I've achieved it. Now that I attend church, I can just I can just sit here and this is where I want to be. We're a church that everyone is always talking about the next step. Where's God calling us out in faith? You know, in our church, things that would be considered radical in in the rest of the world are, are normal. You know, um, last year, one of our elders gave up his lucrative job To become a missionary to China. You know, half a dozen families in our church right now are considering adoption and foster care. You know, um, a couple of dinks. I'm going to embarrass some people. Brian and Ashley Angelina, dinks. You know, that dual income, no kids. People who have all the freedom in the world that they could be doing anything they want to do. The world is their oyster. And what do they do? They invest every Wednesday night in our high schoolers. John and Kendra over there. They've set a personal mission to evangelize Phoenixville in their spare time. And this is normal in our church. This is how we function. This is what we do. People give up their jobs. People people add to their family. People give up their free time. People give ridiculous amounts of money. Why? Because we actually believe that this is true and that following Jesus should never stop we are a safe place to struggle. I, we're not perfect in this. But you know how I know that we're a safe place to struggle because so many people come with their struggles here. Our compassion ministry in this last year, our number of requests for financial help, for counseling, for spiritual help has gone through the roof. Just this last week, I get a phone call, a young woman at our church and they've been she and her fiance have been attending Uh, For a few months now. And our phone conversation was this. My fiance made some mistakes in the past. And he missed a court date. And they threw him in jail. And we thought it was going to be a few days. But it could be three or four months. And you know what our first thought was? We've got to call the church. That when our lives are broken and messed up, we need the church. We need people praying for us. This is not a place where you hide your mistakes. This is a place where when you're broken, you say, I need help. At that moment, my my heart broke and rejoiced that they would think that this is what they're supposed to do. This is who we're supposed to be. And we are a church where the truth is proclaimed. I know that at times this has made our church smaller than it could be. And I'm proud of that. That we are a church that is never gonna hide from the hard truths of scripture. In two years, God has answered so many of our prayers and He seems so intent on blessing us. Let me, a couple of months ago, a report came out from the Evangelical Free Church of America, the EFCA. That's a, a group of autonomous churches, 1,366 churches across North America that, um, that all share the same doctrine, that, that are on the same mission, that share a lot of the same resources, that have a certain level of accountability. We're, we're part of this group. It's a great organization, the EFCA. And it was this report came out to talk about church attendance over the past five years. And it said that of the 1,366 churches in the EFCA... Um, it just gave you some kind of comparison of where's your church at? Are, are you growing? Are you not? How do you, how do you fit into this? Now, let me first say, attendance is a horrible, like, little thing. It, it, thousands, this past weekend, you know, a hundred thousand people showed up to watch the Dallas Cowboys play. Okay, attendance means nothing, right? In some ways. And yet, Jesus Christ has called us to do what? To go and make disciples. And so if a church is actually staying faithful to the gospel and making disciples, you would think this is a good thing. In the past two years, GVF has more than doubled in size. We've seen over 100 men, women, and children not just show up to our worship services, but get plugged into our ministries, into our connect groups, into our discipleship groups, into our outreach events. Of these churches, we're in the top 5% of total growth, not percentages. The, of the Eastern District, 128 churches in New York, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania, there are only four other churches that have grown as much as we have. If you factor in the proportion of our growth, that we had to literally double in size to see that growth, there are fewer than 10 churches in the entire EFCA that have seen that kind of growth. We are in the top 1%. Now, let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that because we grow, we're better or anything like that at all. I know for a fact, I know many people who faithfully serve, who are gospel-centered, who are are making disciples, who are doing everything they can to God's glory, and they don't see any growth. I'm I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that what's happening here in the last two years is not normal, and God needs to be glorified for it. It's not just our attendance that double it's our giving it's our facilities it's our web presence you know more people visit our Facebook our website and listen to our sermons online than here every week it's our staff it's our discipleship groups it's our leadership teams it's our involvement in local outreach and global missions that our leaders have raised the bar in every imaginable category in the last two years even our greeters our AV guys our, our leadership teams uh, our delegation our prayer Our compassion team, our worship team, has multiplied three times in two years. This is not normal. That every single door we've knocked on, God has blown open. That every opportunity we've seriously pursued, God has blessed. Which brings me to the closing, to my point. It's simply this. The reason I'm telling you this today and not preaching on another parable is that when I talk to Lucas and the elders and the leadership here, we find ourselves in a position where God has placed some opportunities in our hands. Where God seems intent to bless us. Where He has put us in a position that He has not put many churches in. That we have momentum and growth and capabilities that very, very few churches have. Here's the question. When you find yourself with opportunities in your hand, and God asking you, what are you going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Now we can respond safe and predictably. We can have the Joe Ash moment where you know we can just plod along, we can just keep the, that little incremental growth that that you know looks good on a piece of paper. We can keep doing that, or we can beat the tar out of the ground with these arrows. God's going to bless us. He's intent on it. but I don't want to miss this opportunity. Let me tell you about couple opportunities that god has put us in a unique position in as we move ahead he's placed us in a unique position to be in our community to reach the next generation he's put us in a unique position to tell our neighbors about jesus that no other church in our community can quite do he's put us in a position to partner with other churches he's put us in a position to do something where in two more years people will look at our church and say surely god was doing something in that place Opportunity number one, God has put us in an opportunity to reach our the next generation. If you haven't realized this yet, newsflash, our children's ministry is busting at the seams. If you look at our age demographics as a church, the largest group of uh, is about age five. That's our, our demographic. Like the average age of our church, because we have so many babies and so many kids, it's like the average age of our church is like nine. <laughs> Like, it's insane. Now, this can be... If you know anything about kids, kids are expensive. Kids are hard. They're difficult. It takes a lot of programming. This could either be the worst thing that ever happened to us or the best God-given opportunity we've ever seen. Do you know what a gift this is? We have dozens and dozens of children. Where? Let me just tell you where I'm at on this. Like, if we succeed in everything, if my preaching becomes world-famous... If Lucas is out there like making workout videos. If we start going on like conference tours. And if we fail our children, we failed. None of that matters. And if there's one area we have to succeed in, it is, it is passing on what God has given us to the next generation. Our kids don't need babysitters. They need men and women of God who love them and love our Lord enough to leverage their gifts, their passion, their creativity to capture their hearts and minds for our Lord. This is why we've been pushing volunteerism. It's not about filling spaces. It's about this awesome God-given opportunity to see the next generation honor God in ways that we can't even imagine. And on a practical level, we need money. Kids are expensive. If we want to realize this opportunity, we need, we need money. We need to upgrade things. We need to upgrade our registration area. We, um, right now we have so many toddlers that we, we really need to hire a, an assistant to be in that class every week to add consistency to the class. Not only is it about the littlest children, though, if you, if you look at our attendance, you see this wave of kids from the nursery and toddlers coming and in about three years we're gonna hit a time where these kids are gonna hit middle school and then on to high school. And so we have about three years, we have this three year opportunity to get ready for that. And what I've noticed in our in Phoenixville, I've talking to all the other pastors and looking at all the other ministries, is that there are none, zero other evangelical ministries, churches or ministries that are focused on reaching the youth, the junior and senior high of Phoenixville right now. None. And I've looked, I mean, here's the deal. Youth are horrible. Like, talk about, man, talk about resource wasters. Talk about liabilities. We have, just talking about youth, we have to get extra insurance. Like, youth are awful, and yet, and yet, 85% of all people who come to know and love our Savior come by the age of 18. It's the greatest mission field we have. And here's the deal. No one is trying to reach Phoenixville. So you know what I've prayed. Lord, please send someone else. Lord, what we really need is a church full of like young people who could who who have extra money and extra time, maybe a really cool location in the center of town where high schoolers and junior hires would want to hang out. And Lord, we really need a place that has the capacity, and it'd be really awesome if maybe they met on the school property. Lord, that would be ideal. And so, Lord has answered my prayers. Man, if there's another way, I'd love for another church to swoop in and deal with our youth. But right now, God is calling us to that. Another opportunity that God has put in front of us is the opportunity to reach our community. If we leverage the bridge, right now there are more opportunities than we can possibly possibly use at our Bridge Street location. In three months, we have seen so much happen. We've, we've, we've touched thousands of people that we never would have otherwise preached. We have an opportunity to leverage this. We have an opportunity on the website. Like I said, we already have more people visiting our church on the web and on our podcast and on our Facebook than will ever show up on Sunday morning. And we have an opportunity coming up with Christmas. Everybody loves Christmas. Baby Jesus, wise men. We have three special Sundays coming up that are dedicated, not for you, but for your friends. God has placed these opportunities in our hands. Moving ahead, we have an opportunity to reach the next generation, both our children and our youth. We have an opportunity to reach our community in ways that we've never seen before. And here's the question. Are we going to take this opportunity? What are we going to do with it? Let me be real practical. I want all of you to do at least one of the following three things. I want you to either volunteer to serving children's ministry, because that's our future. I want you to consider in our bulletin today, there's a year-end giving fund. And usually, I don't ask for money, but honestly, I believe in this stuff. And I have no problem saying, you know what, this stuff that our year-end giving is going toward, towards reaching our community, towards telling people about Jesus Christ, towards our children, it's better than what you got planned for Christmas, friends. I have no problem saying, maybe maybe you need to buy one less gift this year, and maybe you need to buy an evacuation crib. One of the options. Maybe you Maybe you need to give up your vacation this year, and you need to buy a youth ministry intern. Maybe, maybe you need to support an art outreach event at the bridge this year. $350, all yours. And finally, I just want to let you know that Christmas is coming. And just as we saw that God break through and break into our community through that Christmas two years ago, I just want to give this opportunity before you, go. I, I have no expectations. Honestly, our church is doing well. If nothing else happens, if we just keep going on as we're going, that's great. I mean, we're, things are good. But I want more. Maybe I'm just greedy. But when God puts an opportunity in my hand, I want to beat the ground like a madman. I want to beat it till I'm silly. I, 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 want, I want God's last word to me is, you've asked for too much, not too little. Church,